On behalf of the Bite Big team and my co-hosts today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, not the land that we are recording on because we recorded this episode in Tokyo, but the land that this has been edited, created, workshopped and had numerous emails and phone calls from the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We recognise First Peoples of Australia as the original storytellers, designers and artists of this country and we pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Good morning and welcome to episode one of Bite Big, a podcast about boss women leading big brands. I'm your host, Amber Bonney, and wow, do I have an absolute powerhouse of a co-host with me today, introducing Ali Dubay. Welcome, Ali. We're recording this episode from the super cool, or should I say uber cool, pardon the pun, studio in Tokyo, Japan. Pretty privileged to be here. And by the way, it happens to be cherry blossom season, so I'm pretty excited about that. I'm going to introduce Ali and then she will get to say hello. Ali is an experienced marketing leader with a demonstrated history of working across major Australian government and consumer brands like the Australian Trade and Investment Commission and the iconic Arnott's Biscuits which is where we stumbled across each other about five or six years ago. So far, Ali, you've spent your career spanning communications, brand strategy, product innovation, creative problem solving, digital strategy, insight development and analytics. The list goes on and on. Really, what don't you do is probably more the question. You are probably one of the most passionate, driven and innovative markers that I've ever come across in my 25-year history. And it's no bloody wonder that today you hold the position of Head of Marketing Japan for Uber and Uber Eats. And oh my God, congratulations on that role. Firstly, could you be more of a boss woman if you tried? (laughs) What an intro. I I feel like I'm semi-lost for words, which is quite the rarity for me. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't happen often. (laughs) Thank you. I feel very privileged to be sitting across from you. I'm pinching myself that we're in Tokyo together. What a fortuitous turn of events, and I'm really excited to chat through the podcast today. Well, the Bite Big podcast came about really inspired by my personal mantra, bite big and chew like hell. That mantra has really gotten me to where I am today, both personally and professionally. And when we were brainstorming, what should this podcast be about? We thought, well, if Bite Big's your mantra, why doesn't each episode be based on the mantra of the boss women that you're interviewing and how that's motivated them and how we can use that to help get under the skin of what it means to be a boss woman leading a big brand. So I'm going to read out your mantra and then you're going to tell me a bit about it. So your mantra is cut through the bullshit, make really cool shit, live for the real shit and help people find it. And for those who are listening, Ali sent me a PC and non-PC version. Then when I read the non-PC version, I was expecting some C-bombs and (laughs) way more explicit content. And it really just was the word shit. So how did this magic come about? Talk to me. I think a few years ago, we were doing some work as a leadership team at Uber around finding your purpose, your life purpose and your career purpose. And I think I realized that despite the many and varied career history that I had, I'd never actually sat down and tried to define what actually motivates me, what can help be a guardrail for me in terms of setting focus and, you know, setting energy. And so I I sat down and tried to workshop what is it that actually defines my North Star and also helps keep me on track when, when things are, you know, tricky or tough or stressful, you know, what can I use to help remind me what's important? 
I really love that. I love that at Uber you sit down and talk about your personal purpose. Like what a great way to initiate yourself into a business. So how do you show up for this? What are the principles about cutting through the bullshit? I mean, making cool shit is innate, I think, in your DNA, given (laughs) A, the brand that you work for, but also that bucket list of all the career milestones for you to date in innovation and brand development. How does that show up for you? Yeah. How about I start by kind of breaking it down a little bit because there's four key components to the mantra. So I think the first concept is about cutting through the bullshit. And I think as a leader in any way, shape or form, this is the most important thing to be able to cut through complexity bullshit politics, whatever it is, to get to the core of either a strategic challenge, to get to the core of a brand insight, or to get to the core of a problem and a complex problem that you're trying to solve. I think this is just getting rid of red tape, creating clear and compelling direction, and making sure that, you know, everybody's really on that journey and clear as to where we need to go. So that's the kind of first part of it. And I think if you know me as a person, I'm a very cut to the chase person. I don't spend time mincing my words. I'm quite direct. (laughs) Raw authenticity is what I would define that as. (laughs) So I think this is really definitely true to who I am as a person, uh, as well as how I work and what's important for work and success, I believe. Make really cool shit, I think, is an interesting one. What I really mean by this is cool as in effective, not cool as in, wow, that's really hip and cool. And I think there's so many parts to this when it comes to marketing specifically that's really important. Obviously, everything from cut through as a North Star and, and, you know, the attention economy and how important it is to actually get people's attention with anything because otherwise there's no point doing what you're doing. But really at the heart of what motivates me is driving effectiveness, effective marketing, uh, marketing that works and marketing that has impact. So for me- Impact is key, isn't it? Yeah. I think making really cool shit is not just about, you know, fun things. It's really about how to drive effectiveness and prove that effectiveness overall. Live for the real shit. When I spoke about guardrails, this is probably the one that's that's a really important guardrail for me. I've had many different attitudes to my career through my working life. And there were times where career was absolutely everything for me. And I would be more than happy to work a 12-hour day every day, 15-hour day every day, work weekends, and really not have any boundaries. And there's been moments through my life where I've realized that that is completely not the way it should be. Work is a big part of your life and I believe it's important to to enjoy what you do because you spend so much time there, but work is not your life. And I think this is really about what's the real shit? It's family, it's friends, it's self-care, it's balance and making sure that that is the most important thing, uh, not work at all costs. So that to me is a really important guardrail and I know where I've struggled in my career, it's often when that is not prioritised. That's amazing. And for those of you who don't know Ali, who will definitely be doing some research and looking you up on uh, LinkedIn, no doubt. If you don't mind me saying, I don't like to introduce women's age, but you are early 30s, a good 15 years younger than me. (laughs) How long did it take you to get to that point where you understood finding that balance? Because I imagine, you know, early in your career, that wasn't the case. Yeah, I think it took a while. It also took big events. So I lost my mum when I was 28 and it was a big moment of reappraisal for me to say, you know, it it sounds really stereotypical, but at the end of your life, you're not sitting back going, look at all the impact I've had in my career. What a great PowerPoint I built. (laughs) That's exactly it, right? It's about 
the friendships, your relationships and the people that are closest to you. And that's all that matters. So there was a lot of kind of big moments, but even past that, I still over-indexed in work. And I find that it's a really risky strategy to over-invest yourself into your career because Mm. you're not in direct control of everything. So from a mental health point of view, from a, you know, physical health point of view, if you pour yourself 100% into your job, that becomes who you are. And if your job isn't going well, you aren't going well. And I think it's so important to delineate yourself from your job and your career. It's really important to love what you do. I truly believe that. And, and if you can be passionate and interested and, you know, wake up every day excited about your career, fantastic. But you need to delineate yourself from your job because they are very different things. So, mm. yeah, it, it was a lot of probably missteps that, that led me to understand that in conjunction with epiphanies that, you know, have come through hardship. And I'm sure that would resonate with lots of people. It's certainly not a skill that I feel like I have harnessed with complete synergy. As a business owner and like you, quite a driven person, it's a constant check-in reminder. And for those people who have children, and specifically for mothers, as they say, if you don't look after yourself, you then can't care for um children. That's why on planes, they say parents put your mask on first because then you're no help to anyone else. So I can certainly understand how that would resonate. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think what's really interesting is when you realise that you're the one that's in control, you're the only person that can control this. You know, it's, it's everything from the hours you work to how many times you check your phone, you know, on the weekend for emails. When you realise it's just you that's standing in the way of your ability to have balance, it's such a an uncomfortable but important moment because it's it's nobody else that's forcing you to do this. It's your own energy, it's your own focus that is determining, you know, how much engagement you're having with your with your job. So I think it's also about, you know, having that hardcore ability to self-reflect and say, I'm the problem here, you know, overall. That takes a lot of discipline, right? Like a, a lot of maturity and self-reflection, but also a lot of discipline in recognizing the pitfalls and holding yourself accountable basically. Yes. And I know that if anyone's listening that works with me, they'll probably be laughing and saying, you know, I, I am also terrible at this at times, <laughs> right? I am not always oh, good at this. We all, you know, I, I think if you can ebb and flow, it's it's better. I will, you know, pull myself into to crazy hours at times uh, and, and kind of lose my boundaries there. But at the same time, if you can have that discipline to your point and pull yourself back, it's, it's really important. I think that's just awareness, right? Like we're all fallible. We're not going to get it right all the time. But just having the awareness to be able to check yourself and Sometimes I need other people around me. Do you have other people in your life that are like, hey, you're not really living your mantra, love? So (laughs) many people. I am so blessed to have an incredible partner, incredible family. I've got, you know, three sisters who are constantly lecturing me if I'm working too late uh, and incredible friends as well who, who help remind me that this is important. And my team, my boss even, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have an incredible, you know, uh, leader who will constantly pull me up if, if she's concerned about burnout or anything like that. Now, we've talked about the three. Yes. The, the last sort of pillar, help people find it. Let's just talk about that. Yeah, this one is something that's come later in my career. And I guess it's also because I've been so fortunate through my life and through my work life to have so many incredible mentors and managers who have really spent time and invested in developing me. It is the part of my job I love the most is is developing and mentoring my team, 
helping people understand what's important to them and then helping them build their career around that. And, you know, it's something that I spend a lot of time doing. So, you know, this is something that I get so much joy and reward from, helping people find what's important to them, even if it's not what they're doing at that time and that moment, uh, really helping them define what their purpose is and what their mantra is in life. Yeah, my observation, having known you for a while now, you have a magnetic charm about you. And I think what I really respect about you is you build a sort of a community or village. And so not just with your staff, but you are always thinking about ways and opportunities to connect people that you know and love and respect. And sort of, you know, I know when we spoke yesterday, you were talking about, you know, people that you've known that you've tipped in for jobs or um, tried to connect with other great people. So building, my observation is that you love to build a really strong kind of beehive, I suppose, of connections. Um, I'm going to refer to you as the Queen Bee because (laughs) um, this podcast is all around boss women. So yeah, you've got, you know, a hive of great people. And yeah, I certainly feel lucky to be in that hive with you. Oh, no, I think there's that quote, which is be the person who says other people's name in a room full of opportunities. And I feel like I've gotten to where I have today because other people have done that for me. So it is something I'm incredibly passionate about, making sure that you're connecting, raising everybody up uh, and helping people. Oh, I love that. And that is a great segue. I want to talk about expectation. There's certainly a lot of pressure on women and you know that I'm a strong advocate for women in leadership and for raising women's profiles, but there's also a sense of personal expectation and then expectations that others have of women in leadership. So we know there's the cliches around women being bitches or women being narky with each other or the way they dress. We know in politics, um, you know, you just look at Julia Gillard's misogyny speech. You know, you hear about this all the time and you see it in practice. I want to ask around two parts of expectation. The first one being, what expectations do you put on yourself and how intense are they? Which sort of links a little bit really to what you were saying about finding that balance. But let's talk about that for a bit. Such a good question and a hard one to answer, I think. Personally, I have incredibly high expectations of myself. I am very unforgiving of any low performance or non-successful work, but I have learnt over time to use that as a learning opportunity rather than to be really hard on yourself. So again, it's something I struggled with a lot more when I was younger. I didn't ever want to put a foot wrong and I would agonise over the smallest decisions that were completely meaningless because I was putting way too much pressure on myself to be perfect and right every time. So I still have really high expectations of myself and I find they come out more and more in situations where you're stretched the most. So for example, you know, I've recently moved to Tokyo and been acting in a role in the Japan business for about seven months. I had such high expectations of myself and was very hard on myself in the first three months. You know, (laughs) moving to a new country, particularly a country as foreign as Japan, means constant missteps, constant mistakes. And I would just get so frustrated at myself for not being able to thrive in an area like this and not give myself enough time to be able to learn and grow. So I just, I expect myself to be able to come in at 100% every time. And that strategy is completely flawed and basically has you getting your ass handed to you on a constant basis. And I think that's been a really important thing for me to learn and to be a bit more gentle and forgiving with myself, allow myself the time to learn and continually learn, as well as embracing 
more of an 80-20 style. That side comes a little bit more naturally to me. I'm not necessarily a perfectionist when it comes to kind of work per se. Mm. I'm quite good at 80-20, but how do you transition that 80-20 from work style into that expectation on self mm. and allow yourself the room to to fail, to learn, to grow? It's a it's a continued journey, I would say, but it's a really a really big challenge, I think, for women in leadership, for a lot of people in leadership, you know, to, to be able to balance that. Yeah, and I suppose there's this sense, and I don't know if you feel this, but there's this sense that when you're a woman and you're at the C-suite boardroom, that you have to work harder or you have to check yourself and you have, you know, the considerations of, you know, what do you wear? Like, are you in your power suit? Are you in your dress? Are you looking too feminine? Have you got too much lipstick on? Like, what's the, do you not wear lipstick at all? Do you experience that where you're just conscious of your like physicality as well as what you say, how you say it, when you respond? It's so interesting because I've had such a diverse career in terms of industry. So I, you know, I started in advertising, moved into FMCG, had a stint in government, and now I'm in tech. And I would say throughout those roles, I have had very different sets of expectations placed on me. And my role or my gender has been very prevalent or not prevalent at all. And even within the roles I've had at Uber, I think it's it's quite different even within the same company. Mm. And is that culturally? Yes, yeah, culturally. On, um, being in the Australian team versus being in the local uh, Tokyo team. That's it. So I would say where I am the most out of my comfort zone, I will have a high level of awareness of those things. Yes. I will overthink everything from what I'm wearing to what my makeup looks like to how I wear my hair. I will be very critical of myself in terms of, you know, wearing loud clothing and, and standing out too much and feeling like I'm too much for so many situations. Yeah. And that is generally in periods of very big growth, low, lower levels of confidence, um, that, that is a hyper-aware uh, thing. So yeah. the other area that I felt it a lot was in government. Yeah. I think government has a long way to go in terms of the way that women are perceived and the roles that people expect women to have. And I have had direct conversations in government with senior leaders who advised me to buy a three-piece suit, wear pearl earrings, wear a pair, wow. a pair of high heels so that Now, people... I love, look, I'm getting to the age really where you just, I'm loving on pearls. Again, I love pearls I've come too. full circle. <laughs> Nothing against but, pearls. you know, it certainly says something, doesn't it, when someone says put some pearls on. Yeah. It means, you know, be a respectable mum. That's the vibe I'm getting, like respectable (laughs) mother of the bride is what I hear when I hear pearls. Yeah, I think there's something that says that what you wear is important to be taken seriously Mm. and I think that that hopefully is continuing to be eradicated because it is complete and utter bullshit and actually just letting people be their authentic self is how you should be letting allowing people to be taken seriously. It's a difficult journey, right? Just on that point of expectation, it's a slight segue and you know I like to go down (laughs) rabbit holes, but the idea of not judging other women is like something I am so conscious of. And if you want to wear a short mini skirt and a crop top to a meeting, I am trying very hard now (laughs) to be the type of person that's like, you do you. I might think I would make a different choice, but the idea and certainly the messages that we want to pass on to the next generation Mm. is that if you want to wear a power suit or you don't want to wear a power suit, I mean, obviously there's context to Mm -hmm. professional Mm -hmm. environments, but they're judged on the merits of their intelligence and what they're contributing as opposed to what they're wearing. And I certainly understand what you're saying because, I mean, today I'm wearing 
a very loud pink, white and fluorescent yellow boiler suit. Um, Certainly no pearls. I did contemplate putting the pearls on. But I'm also the type of person that's quite considered when I'm going to a meeting what would be the most appropriate thing to wear. And sometimes that's just based on my mood. If I'm just feeling sassy, I'll just go, I don't care. I'm going to rock that boiler suit to a conservative meeting. Uh, And other times, you know, potentially, as you said, like I might be feeling like it's a high impact or a high pressure moment, stakes are high. I'm just going to wear black and keep it super simple and get those pearls on. It's so interesting. And I think there's a role within that that's around stereotyping that's also interesting that I think we all play. I play this too in terms of choosing my outfit based on the conversations and meetings that you're going to have. Mm. It's almost like we're perpetuating the stereotype within ourselves by saying, I need to feel serious for this meeting, therefore I'm going to wear a blazer. But at the same time, if that's giving you confidence, yeah, should it even matter? Should it matter? It's such a meta conversation and I just think mm. we just put so much thought and, and so much energy into so much of this, which is so unnecessary, but also you know, could be important to you. So mm. I think like Uber, for example, has a really great culture in terms of, I remember when I went for my interview at Uber, I was in my government role and I was wearing quite a conservative dress down was to my navy knees. blue? Navy blue. Oh, of course. what a guess. You know, and some conservative shoes. And um, I was having an interview with the head of marketing for Australia at 8.30 in the morning. He gave me the, the kind of address. It wasn't the floor that reception was on that he was greeting me on. And I kind of knocked on this glass door and this guy came, no shoes, shorts, white tea, eating a bowl of cereal. And I was like, oh, hello, I'm here to see Andy Molly, head of marketing for Australia. And he's like, oh, cool, I'll just grab him. Do you want a coffee? And he kind of took me over to the coffee machine where the barista was working, chatting away, chatting away, chatting away. And then after about five minutes, I was like, oh, well, it's been so great to meet you, but um, should, should I be introduced to Andy? And he laughed and he's like, I'm Andy. Was he eating Fruit Loops? <laughs> he was eating, I think, cornflakes. Uh, okay. But, you know, good Aussie classic. Literally yeah. no shoes, shorts, T-shirt. Uber is a company, nobody gives a fuck what you wear. You can wear whatever you want and people will take you seriously. And that was so refreshing after a world of government where it wasn't the case. And I think that took a lot of pressure off myself to worry and care as much. Yeah, you can just be... You like colour. I love colour. Yeah. I wore this for you because you like pink. I do love pink. Yeah. And this is actually (laughs) the only thing I have that's pink. So it's it's in your (laughs) honour. Just before we finish up on expectation... What about expectations that others have in you? Have you had any, I suppose, key life milestones or people in your life that have put immense pressure on you? Interestingly, I think the person that puts the most pressure on me is myself. Yeah. I am surrounded by incredibly supportive people. I am so lucky in that regard. And if anything, people are trying to teach me to put less pressure on myself, Mm. not the other way around. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. And, and don't let yourself and these expectations, you know, be to your detriment. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. In saying that, there are moments where I still think there are genuine expectations, right? Coming into this role. Well, there um, are now Yes, yeah, that's role. exactly it, right? The stakes are high. It's a very big role, incredible opportunity, phenomenal team to work with. But you've got skin in the game. You have to you have to perform. And, and I, I don't want to make it sound like that all the jobs that I've had through my career, there is very high expectations on performance. That actually motivates me. Mm. So I quite like having high expectations to be able to 
continue to push myself and challenge myself, that's really motivating for me. Do you need that carrot? Are you a... 100%. Because I'm the donkey that needs the carrot. Yeah. Which is really where the bite big came from. Yeah. I will say yes to something and then work out how to do it later. I know before you took the role, we had a conversation around just what a massive role it is. Obviously, you're pretty young for a role like this. Like it's a significant global role. And one of the things I said to you, and I had a debate with someone at my business recently about the term fake it to you, mate. And he's like, I don't know that I agree. I I feel like that's uncomfortable because it feels inauthentic. And uh, that expression actually came to me from a psychologist. And you studied psychology, which (laughs) um, I only just recently found out, which is quite amazing. But from a psychological perspective, I suppose what the psychologist was saying to me was, even when you don't feel like you're in that space, you have to pretend that you're doing that. And to some extent, Bite Big is about that. I will say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then realise I've got 10 great ideas going at once. (laughs) How the hell am I going to get all these things to market, including this podcast? But the idea that you just reach, you reach and look up and then you will make it, you will do it, you will find the way to persevere and get through. Is that something that you felt coming into this role and is that something you've experienced multiple times over? I would say every single big jump I've had, not in terms of, you know, a promotion but in terms of growth, so, you know, changing industries, coming into new roles, it has had that through and through. I've met very few people who genuinely think that they are capable for the roles that they are in as soon as they take them. So I I think that fake it till you make it is 100% true of all humanity. And particularly if you're a, a person who loves big challenges, that will be your modus operandi for a very long time, in my opinion. So I, I definitely think fake it till you make it is needed to be able to have confidence or to be able to have surface level confidence that you know what you're doing, that you are in control of a situation and that you have the ability to thrive, even if you feel completely the opposite. I think it is very similar to imposter syndrome in a way. Mm. Uh, It's kind of the other flip side of imposter syndrome. And if you can embrace that as your mantra, I think that you will be set up for success Mm. uh, more so. I mean, just it's for me, that's about seeing it. So knowing when you're feeling that way, recognising it, One of the challenges that we have certainly in Australia and I imagine in Japan probably even more imbalanced is so many women don't even apply for leadership roles or executive roles because they feel underqualified, right? Like if you read your own resume, you would say there's no way. Like that is who can do that? Like that is way (laughs) too intense. But the reality of those jobs, like resumes are just like 70% bullshit anyway, right? And then – the job description and the reality of what actually happens, there's also like a whole lot of puffery that goes on. And so there's this kind of that imposter syndrome manifests itself for lots of women in going, oh, actually, I won't stretch, even though they're fully capable. And so the point that you made earlier around feeling privileged because you've had women that have elevated you up, it's such an important message in you helping other people to find it because not all women have that opportunity. Not all women have great mentors that have elevated them up. I had a a boss of mine who was a man and he was just like that, put me into a role from a senior designer 
to an account director. I'd never even opened Word. I had no idea how to run an estimate. I had absolutely no credentials for this role at all. And I had a one-day handover with the account director, who I'm still friends with. Hi, Kim. In that handover period, I had no idea what I was doing, but he had faith in me and he just let me sort of fumble along. And he's like, well, you understand the clients, you understand the process and strategy. So the rest we can teach you. And what a gift that was. You've hit the nail on one of the most important things for a successful career. A successful life and a happy life is by surrounding yourself with incredible people. And I think while I've had incredible mentors along the way, I've also had horrendous mentors or horrendous leaders who have taught me everything that I don't want to be. But Mm. it's about how you can foster and continue and establish that connection with the people who are bringing you up, celebrating you and, and constantly, you know, helping, you know, bring out the best in you. I think the point around fake it till you make it is so critical in women in leadership positions. And there's a specific example that comes to mind. One of my best friends recently was promoted into a regional general manager role of a massive tech company. And the number of conversations we had to have around fake it till you make it, around, you know, I'm not qualified for this job. I'm not sure how to how to succeed in this role. I don't even like know if I can do it. I don't even know what the role is and what it entails. But being able to back yourself enough to say, every opportunity that I've been thrown in the past, I've been able to step into and and smash. Why would it be any different for this role? Just look at the data That's of it. your life and go, here are all the obstacles that I have overcome. And, you know, if you looked at that analytically, you'd say, well, sure, I can overcome this or I can do this. But it's just not the natural tendency. The natural tendency is to move into that fear state and go, I'm not good enough. Here are all these amazing people surrounding me. You you know, you look on Instagram and LinkedIn and all these amazing people doing amazing things and go, oh, wow, like that's just overwhelming. And there are so many even incredible women. You're like, oh, my God, I cannot believe they've written five books. They've done their PhD. (laughs) They've raised six children. They've homeschooled. It's like, what? How did you even, you know? Yeah, but if you sat down and had a conversation with all of those women, they would tell you all the 10 things that they've done wrong in that time frame and not necessarily the things that they've all the done great right. Things. And I think there is this natural tendency for people to be so hard on themselves, particularly women, uh, and to look at people around them and overestimate other people's ability while simultaneously underestimating theirs. And mm-hmm. I think that's the the data that that I continue to try and feed other people and, and remind myself of. When you get into these these big opportunities, you will actually see that there are flaws in what other people that you previously idolised did, right? Nobody is perfect, yet it's such a natural tendency to sit there and go, they're perfect, I'm subpar. I'm not. And I think continuing to build data points, rational data points, because emotionally it's very hard to, to be challenging in that way, but to continue to build rational data points to suggest actually everybody is flawed, nobody is perfect, and that you know, if you can back yourself into these big opportunities and these kind of big moments or small moments or whatever it is that is in front of you and and continue to fake it till you make it, that's only going to be for the better. So. And what a powerful leadership message that is because in order to inspire other people, so whether they're people that report to you or just people around you, your community, your hive, Actually having that level of authentic leadership where you do show up with imperfection, you do express yourself in an honest way and you do show people that you can make mistakes and, yes, that even your 
fallible really just is a, a ripple effect on everyone else because if everybody thinks that everyone else is perfect, everything just becomes a mask really. Like there's Yeah. I think the most interesting part of this is that I spent so much energy and time in my early career wanting to know everything. I thought success was knowing every answer, regardless of the question. And I killed myself to be the smartest person in the room every time. I would read, I would listen, I would try and be a sponge and I would write notes on everything so that I knew the answer to any question. It's like 48 years of my life flashing in front of me. And you know what? There are some stats, and I really wish that I had them here, (laughs) around um, the imposter syndrome in women and being over-preparing for meetings. So where their counterparts, who are male, might just, you know, sort of swan in, women will over-prepare for everything because they're so fearful of being caught out or not knowing when the question comes. And, you know, certainly something that I've learned over the last 25 years, and hopefully I teach other people a mentor is it's actually okay to not know. It's actually okay in the moment to go, wow, that's really interesting. I did not know that. Like you do not have to solve anything in the moment. Learning it is one thing. Truly believing it took me a long time. Learning it to show other people that I was listening to things that they were telling me, um, you know, but it took me a long time to actually take it to heart and say, being the smartest person in the room is actually limiting. Being adaptive, being authentic mm. and, and actually getting taking the time to get the right information is so much more powerful and will take you so much further. So understanding that rationally and emotionally in my heart to say it's okay not to know, it's okay to be fallible, uh, it's okay to not take yourself so seriously mm. and, and kind of let yourself relax and stop putting all this insane pressure on yourself that has actually enabled me to grow more in my professional career than anything else. And when you're not active listening, you're sort of in fight or flight, right? So your adrenaline is running because you're fearful you're going to get caught out or that a question's going to come, and therefore you're actually not even present to the moment. <laughs> you have you would walk out, my personal experience is sometimes I'd walk out of a meeting and I'd be like, I don't even know what happened yeah. because I was just ready to pounce at every point thinking I needed the answer and I would have like five screens up on my laptop so that I could like remember everything. It gives me a flashback. We used to have these meetings at Arnott's for Innovation, which are called gate meetings, and they're kind of big innovation milestone meetings. And I used to get so stressed in those meetings. I would type out word for word what I was going to say as a script. I would put it in front of me and I would try and read it or remember it. And, And kind of if I forgot a word, my mind would go blank and I would completely panic. It was so detrimental instead of just going in and saying, I know what I'm talking about. I am living this every day. I know as much as anybody else in this room does. I know more than most people in this room do on this specific subject and backing yourself to say, be present, listen and engage. Yeah. And sometimes that's also about self-advocacy, right, which is an expression I learned recently working through a diversity and inclusion course that we were doing um, with the business. And one of the things I realised was I've actually always been pretty good at self-advocating, but it's actually not a, a skill or a trait that everyone has. And therefore, we have all these biases around, you know, when you're interviewing, for example, interviews are designed for people who can self-advocate, who can 
you know, defend wow. who defend never, themselves. Never who can, thought about that. Yeah, and you know what? I had so many flashbacks to all the people that I potentially didn't hire because they lacked confidence in the presentation itself or in the, you know, second or third interview. And then I thought they were probably just really nervous. They might have had the skills that we needed. They just needed to be nurtured and needed to be elevated. And I've just cut them off <laughs> because, you know, they didn't have the most bravado. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I've made some terrible hires yep. over time, which actually killed my own confidence about, am I actually good at reading people? Yes. But when I started to unpack this idea of, like, advocacy, and it's the same in a meeting, A, people need a safe space to feel like they can advocate in their own way. And, you know, if I think about that sort of nervousness you were talking about in those gate meetings, sometimes if a culture does not foster openness and transparency and authenticity from from a leadership group, it puts everyone into fight or flight mode. And then it's very hard to advocate for yourself or it's very hard to sort of feel confident because you're just feeling the immense pressure. Yeah, I like I completely agree with that. A lot of it is cultural and I think even the format of meetings that was a very traditional everybody sitting around a boardroom table, you would have a 15-minute time slot, you would wait outside the room 5 minutes beforehand, you would walk into the room, sit down, have a 2-minute introduction. It was a super formal process. And I think even that format of the meeting is driving that fear behaviour and that self-doubt that then will only let certain types of people thrive. Maybe that's why I do feel a bit guilty because sometimes I can be that person in the meeting that's quite loud or a lot or has an opinion. And one of my own personal journeys is actually learning to just be a bit more chill in a meeting. <laughs> and also, tips? Yeah, Any tips and also to be aware of those people whose voices might not be as loud, mm-hmm. still obviously equally as valid, but trying to give other people space. The biggest aha moment for me on this has been moving to Japan. A, I'm working a lot with people, English is their second or third language. So my pace, my directness, my confidence in what I'm saying can be very disarming and very confronting. And that was one of the biggest shifts in in coming into the Japan organisation is to be okay with silence, to sit in silence, to allow people to go away and come back and not expect everybody to have the answer in the moment. I'm still learning and I'm still on the journey for, but I think so much of what we do, particularly in an Australian culture, is we like to make quick decisions. We like to, uh, you know, radical candor, have the food fight in the in the meeting room, Life. Uh, yeah. you know, debate face-to-face. Uh, and that is a very you know, Western perspective. It is a very privileged, you know, confident, extroverted personality. Exactly. Um, That that fosters people who are like that. And I think that is limiting. Mm. And I think that the more we can be open to the quieter voices or the introverted voices or the less self-advocates, allow people space to think about problems and solutions or to allow them the safety to ask silly questions that are not going to have judgment associated with them, I think is critical. And I think you learn so much more by giving those quieter or, you know, less self-advocating or introverted voices the time and the the space to be able to come back. And, and, you know, I've got people in my team I can think of already who blow me away by <laughs> the incredible responses and the incredible thinking that they they will come back to me on if you allow them the space and the, the time to be able to do that. It's really when we think about 
you know, beyond just the, I suppose, corporate ticking boxes of having diversity. And diversity means lots of things, right? It means like ableism, it means cultural, it means socioeconomic, it means gender, it means sexual preferences, like there's so much depth to diversity. But if you don't have those differences of opinion, then you're only ever seeing through the singular lens, which is, you know, certainly in Australia, still a massive problem. It's still very dominated by middle-aged white men to be sort of just to play to the cliche, but that makes decision-making really difficult because it means you're only talking to the same people. You're just talking to each other. And so, yeah, having those different perspectives I think is really important for culture. And making sure that we allow the space and time for them because I think the other thing is, particularly in fast-moving businesses, decisions need to be made quickly. And, again, that is that is meaning that the type of people that end up thriving in those environments are, again, the extroverted, self-advocating, mm-hmm. quick thinkers rather than necessarily balancing that depth of thought and the, the kind of more consideration that is required for some of these big strategic decisions. decisions. So how can we get better at allowing the space and time, the right space and time, while moving quickly is something that I really struggle to, to kind of balance as a leader. Yeah, I get that. All right. Let's talk about being a brand boss. It's obviously the foundation of this podcast and we've talked about reaching and we've talked about um, the challenges around feeling like you're not enough. How important in your role now is it to take risks and be courageous? I think that is the foundation for success. I think particularly in advertising, taking risks to create work that cuts through and yeah, I think it's it's just so critical in this visually complex and busy world that we live in. It is the foundation for success. And your current role, on a scale of one to 10, how embracing are they of risk-taking and courage compared to potentially some of your other roles? It depends what we're trying to do. So there is a lot of what we are trying to do that is actually more about being a brand that understands local culture. Mm. Uh, so in that way... So it's all about context, right? Because what's brave in one culture or country might not be hitting any metric at all on bravery or distinction in another. That is exactly it. And we spend a lot of time with our uh, global brand colleagues and, and the APAC MLT discussing this because bravery means completely different things in different contexts, particularly when it comes to work. And I think being really intentional and clear about what level of bravery or change or... Uh, cut through that you need for each of the pieces of work that you're doing up front is also really important because it's it's always a tension when we want work that cuts through, but cut through doesn't always equal out there. Cut through can mean a million different things. Mm. And I That's think quite subjective, right? Yeah. And I think we have a tendency to say cut through means crazy, which it often does in an Australian context. I would say mm. cut through is often linked to out there or different or innovative. Whereas in a Japanese context, cut through can mean something completely different. It could just be a really rational, linear storytelling with some crazy visual or crazy celebrity combinations or something like that. It's it's a really interesting challenge. I mean, you've been here two and a half years? Yeah, I've been at Uber two and a half um, in Japan for seven months. So I am not the expert in this at all. I am just lucky. I have still a journey. Oh, yeah. I have this incredible team 
I'm not the local expert. Again, I, I need to, you know, embrace the fact I don't know what's best in a lot of these situations and I'm lucky to be surrounded by other brand bosses in my team who are incredible judges of, of the level of change and impact that we need from each different communication. In terms of other areas, if I think more traditional FMCG, what I'm seeing in FMCG and, and you know, the trend away from consumer packaged goods into everything but consumer packaged goods mean that industry's future is reliant on big, bold bets. And I think there is a fundamental challenge with a lot of FMCG innovation at the moment that it needs to be margin accretive, it needs to be uh, non-cannibalistic, but to be able to do these big, bold innovation bets, it's going to take five years to make a sustainable opportunity. And I think, you know, there's that famous book, The Innovator's Dilemma, around, you know, short-term incentivization not leading to big breakthrough bold thinking mm. because everybody's rewarded for in-year performance. And I think... No one wants to be accountable for something not working. Exactly. And certainly my observation, like, in the thick of that space. So if you're working for a big blue chip, what they deem to be innovation versus what a creative person might deem is innovation are, like, 3,000 points <laughs> Different. And so really where the innovation is coming from at the moment are all the independents. It's all the startups. It's all the hustlers that are really even some of them strategically building brands to sell because the big businesses can't do it. No one wants to be accountable. They're like turning the Titanic. It's also just that we like to think success is overnight. And I think there's a lack of patience in terms of we can build a sustainable business, but it's going to take three or five years. It's Or we'll, we'll take the hit now to then invest in something to make it more sustainable. Bigger businesses who are incentivized on a short-term basis are always going to struggle making those decisions because they're not going to be rewarded for it. They need instant it. gratification. That's yeah. it. They're, Someone needs that for their next promotion. That's exactly it. Have you ever taken a risk that hasn't paid off? Oh, millions. <laughs> I'm like, I think four out of 10 of the things that I do are don't, don't, don't work. work. Yeah. Right. And are you kind to yourself when that happens? Depends. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Depends how big the impact, exactly <laughs> the results it. are. I would say my entire foray into government was a mistake. Yeah. But what I'm learning in my wise old age uh, is that actually sometimes you learn more from understanding what doesn't work and what you don't like mm-hmm. as a person than what you do. It's almost easier to, to learn from failures than it is to learn from success. Yeah. And if you don't learn from the failure, then what a waste. Yeah. And I think particularly in different cultures, so again, thinking about Australia versus Japan, in Australia, it's okay to fail and it's okay to not be perfect. Whereas in a culture like Japan that, you know, it is a culture of perfection, and that's why it's the most incredible place, one of the most incredible places in the world. But that means it's harder to empower a team to fail, which is so critical to Mm. success, and to let people almost celebrate when they are learning instead of celebrate when they are perfect. Uh, It's a really interesting challenge uh, that that I want to try and continue to, to kind of push, but is so hard when your deep cultural values are for such a long time rooted in perfectionism. What's been your biggest boss moment? Like, what are you most proud of? If you think, if you're comfortable with the term boss woman, 
which of not course many people are. I am absolutely yes. not, and we'll just, uh, yeah, just eyes will glaze over and pretend uh, that that's, how that's many someone else you're talking. <laughs> um, like if you step back, if you were your friend talking about yourself, what would they say has been your biggest boss moment? Most people would say it's it's the move to Japan. It was only ever going to be an interim basis until recently. It's been confirmed to be a more permanent opportunity. Interestingly, if I reflect on it, I actually think the biggest boss move I made was leaving my first job. And I remember the intensity and pressure that I put on myself to make a decision around leaving my first job, which I adored. I I was in an advertising agency, a startup advertising agency that was on fire, still is an incredible place. But I just knew deep down advertising was only a very small part of what I wanted to understand and do. And there was an opportunity in FMCG at Campbell Arnott's to work on brand innovation, full end-to-end marketing. And that was so exciting for me. And when I got that role, I was almost paralyzed into indecision as to whether I should take it. I cried my eyes out for days. I consulted every single person under the sun to ask them what to do. I wanted to outsource that decision to somebody. And I just put the entire weight of the world on me at such a young age to, you know, I didn't want to let the people down that had nurtured me so well in the role that I had. I didn't know if I would succeed. And I think making that jump was one of the most critical things to help me understand that I can do hard things. I can take risks. I can jump into the deep end and I can swim. And understanding that has then enabled me to make these decisions again and again with more confidence. Wow. It is quite brave because you were there for two years. Yeah. It's quite brave two years in, like to acknowledge you need another challenge and you need to keep growing. And you mentioned before about, you know, your preparations for meetings and wanting to know everything. I imagine that your thirst for knowledge is insurmountable. <laughs> and so I suppose the, you know, the, the recognition, and I see that as a real boss move in knowing actually this is to leave something comfortable yep. that you love and to, you know, fly out of the nest when everything's going great. Because it's really easy to leave when it's terrible, yep. right? Like that's that's kind of traditionally human nature. Yeah, When you're getting bored and, or you're just you've got people that you work with that you don't like, it's really easy to make that decision to leave. You're like, hallelujah, see you later, door closed, never coming back. But when things are great, that is super brave to say, actually, this is really amazing, but I need to move on. A hundred percent. And even the two roles that I've had at Uber, I would say the role that I was in previously is my dream job. So I was in my dream job before this Japan opportunity came up. And you when just it, jumped off the high rise, you know, into the air. Exactly. And and struggled so much when I first got to Japan. It was a real battle. You know? I mean, you could not have picked a country with more complexity in terms of cultural difference, the rituals, 100%, the, the, the language. Kind of the rules, the, the structure. Um, you know, you talk about thinking that you're too much. I have never felt more too much than in this culture. Everything from what I wear to my voice being so loud to how I walk to every single thing that I do is 
too much for Japan, mm. right? Because Japan is such a structured and orderly society, which is incredible. And it's just such an amazing culture to be a part of. But in every single situation, in work, in on the train, uh, you feel too much. Yeah. It's hard to assimilate when you feel, yeah, so different. Just, and that self-doubt creeps in and that self, you know, flagellation of like, be better, you know, be smaller, be less, but also not letting yourself listen to that so much that it destroys who you are and why you're here in the first place. It's it's a really tricky balance. Just a cycle. <laughs> but what an amazing personal journey. I reject the idea that you have to be passionate about what you do only on the premise that, like, I'm very passionate, you're very passionate in my circle or my beehive. I have you know, a lot of passionate people who love what they do. But having a career is a privilege. Probably 80% of the world work because they have to work. They're not doing what they love. They're doing it because they need to earn a crust. And so having the opportunity and the privilege to do what you love in a way that has impact and, you know, is emotionally and intellectually fulfilling is just such a beautiful thing. Totally. Incredibly privileged to be able to do so. And it's, it's, it reminds me, one of my sisters, you know, one of the smartest people I know, uh, she was a lawyer. She got into a graduate program at a big four, you know, in a really strong role. And she cried every day. She hated it. And she, she bounced to these other incredible walls at like the world bank and she was in Kiribati and she was doing all this incredible stuff, but just hated what she did. And she ended up retraining as a teacher and she is the most incredible teacher and she's so happy and fulfilled by that. And she and just loves it. She is just such a better person for choosing a path that is, you know, that is right not for her. Not about status. Not about and status not about and money. money. And, and I think that's bravery. It's braver to take that path than it is just to kind of constantly be chasing the dollar signs. Or something that's just not authentic to you. That's exactly it. And again, it comes from a place of privilege to be able to, to do that. To do that. And side note, we do not pay our teachers anywhere near Absolutely enough. Absolutely not. Um, or our nurses. Or nurses. There's like 5,000 podcasts on that topic. So bite big starts with a B, both words. My last name starts with a B. What's been your biggest B moment and what was the impact? B moment, the the word I've chosen is bloom. Uh, As you know, we are recording from Tokyo, Nakamegaro, and on the way to the studio, we walked past the cherry blossoms. Absolutely amazing. They are in full bloom at the moment. And I think that word represents so many things. It represents the opportunity that I've had to move here uh, and being incredibly privileged to take this opportunity. But it also reflects a more internal mindset shift in me. And I guess it comes back to that idea of transitioning from the smartest person in the room and having to know everything to be able to actually be a leader and not know everything. And that's kind of, it sounds so lame, but a, a kind of bloom within oneself and, and allowing myself to, to grow, to not know everything, to be fallible. All of that is, is my B word. What a beautiful response. And might I say I'm exceptionally envious because you're about a decade before me when you've discovered that. It's taken me a long time and it's still on a journey. And for those listening who aren't familiar with the, I suppose, the 
delicate nature of the cherry blossoms here in Japan. It's a two-week window and it changes every year. So I have always loved the cherry blossoms. I'm not sure why. They just speak to me as a as a flower and a tree. And so to be here during that period is just like a life bucket list um, and even more fabulous that it's tax deductible. So <laughs> um, I will say, though, I do feel like I've probably sent the benchmark really high episode one. I'm not sure <laughs> how I'm going to top this. Um, I've only got one more thing to ask you. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, what podcast would you ask her to listen to? Is there a TED Talk that really speaks to you that we'd say, when I was younger, I wish I had have read that? What a, another great question. Um, I think there's a theme here throughout this conversation. Uh, I would say to my younger self, it's going to be okay, would be the first thing that I say to her. You know, there's going to be tough shit that comes your way, but you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to cope and you're actually going to be able to not just survive, but thrive. And I think the thing that I would want my younger self to listen to or read is is Brene Brown, another B. And B boss. Double B. I mean, <laughs> she is definitely one of the world's boss women. Oh, I just adore her. And I mean, I think, she's up there with Oprah, I feel like. Yeah. Um, Oprah's my other boss woman. <laughs> she, mm. I think, the power of vulnerability. Did you watch the TED Talk before the book yes. or the other way around? I watched the oh, TED Talk wow. before the book and I just think she personifies all that, that entire – Talk, book, everything personifies so much of what is deep within a lot of us in terms of, you know, shame and fear um, versus, you know, being vulnerable and putting yourself out there, being in the arena. If everybody in the world could read one book to make themselves a better person, I think there is something incredibly powerful within Brene Brown and the, the concept of vulnerability and embracing vulnerability. I mean, I this is a big call, but I honestly think that book and her TED Talk actually introduced the word vulnerability to the workplace. A hundred percent. Like in general. hundred percent. Like we talk about that. Um, I gave a talk for International Women's Day recently at a client's and, you know, they thanked me for being vulnerable. That word would not have existed outside of that book. I think it is been the most critical thing to my success and to be able to help other people and to be able to build these connections and everything, you know, and and I feel so privileged to be able to have learnt about that, to have been able to go on the self-discovery journey of understanding what that means for me uh, and just embracing the fact that we're all imperfect, flawed, hot messes, hot messes uh, and the more incredible people and women that I surround myself by, I just laugh, you know, we're all hot messes, we're all too much, we all think the same and actually just embracing that becomes our superpower. I love that. Well, they are beautiful parting words. I really want to thank you Ali, not only for just gracing us with your authenticity today, allowing me to come to Tokyo was very critical that we did not do this over the internet. I really felt like I needed to feel your presence (laughs) and your energy. Um, Certainly that's the rationale I passed on to the business when I was booking this ticket. (laughs) And I really appreciate you just showing us your version of biting big. And I think what's really important about this podcast is actually everyone's version of biting big is going to be different and some people's exceptionally big and some people it's lots of small chunks to to go on their journey. There are three things that I've really taken away from here. One is your impact on people and 
effectiveness and being very, um, I suppose, results driven. But that's not just about business performance. That's actually about having impact with people and community as well. I also loved when you spoke about being kind to yourself and finding balance and peace. And I know that that's a continued journey for you and probably for everyone, but I think that's a really important message. And also this idea of blooming, I thought what a beautiful metaphor for growth through imperfection. And growth through imperfection, if there's any core takeout for today in episode one, I think that's probably what we want to be on a T-shirt. Yeah, I love that. And I have a strong suspicion I'm going to listen back to this podcast and hide under a table and die of embarrassment (laughs) about all the things that I've said. So I think that growth through imperfection is going to be a continued journey too. A continued journey, yeah. We'll try not to edit the good pieces out. We'll fake it till we make it, uh, embrace the uh, uncertainty and see how it goes. This podcast is produced and made by women. And to show our gratitude Bite Big are donating $500 on your behalf and you've chosen the charities National Breast Cancer Foundation and Angels Care, which is a Ukraine charity. Talk to me about the significance of those for you. I'll start growing. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Uh, this is the moment I probably burst into tears and you can you can hear the emotion in my voice. Um, two charities that mean a lot to me. The first charity is the source of my tears. Um I lost my mum to breast cancer when I was 28. So sorry. She, oh, it's it's part of part of who I am. Um, but she was the most incredible, inspiring boss you could ever imagine. Raised four beautiful, crazy girls who never thought boss that women. Yeah. who never thought that being a woman was anything other than a strength. So the first donation is on her behalf overall. And she'll be uh, rolling her eyes at me and my emotion in this moment. Uh, what was her name, Ellie? Uh, Janet. Oh, Janet. <laughs> she's, uh, she's We're thinking the, of you, Janet. She's the OG boss. Um, and the second one is actually another beautiful story. The universe has introduced me to another boss. Her name is Natalia and she's currently living in our house in Sydney. Uh, Natalia is from the Ukraine and she has had her own really interesting story and she has a full-time charity, a bereavement charity on child loss called oh, Angels Care. Amazing. Uh, that is uh, run out of the Ukraine and she's a, a phenomenally inspiring force that the universe has connected me with and I'm incredibly grateful. Well, that's beautiful. Well, let's dedicate episode one to both of those fabulous boss women. Let's do that. Thank you, Ali. Thank what you, What an incredible <laughs> experience and thank you for being vulnerable with us. I'm your host, Amber Bonnie. Until next episode... May you bite big and chew like hell.